All right, we are trying to think. I don't have any good jokes to start you off with today, so you're just stuck. You're going to have to settle for bad pop culture references for a thousand here. So we are in Exodus 22, continuing the look at the laws. But again, luckily, basically every time we get a new little section, we get a new emphasis. So today's emphasis, which is a good movie reference from the 80s, is marriage is what brings us together today. And if you have no idea what movie that's from, shame on you. Enjoy better 80s movies. They will do you good. Now, we have some other stuff in here, but all of that stuff matters. Why we are continuing to go through this is because, well, we started this book, and I am determined that once we start it, we're going to finish it at some point. So, and actually, that point is probably going to be January, so you have something to look forward to, if nothing else. But in your mind, you have a grid, whether you realize it or not, and that grid is how you interpret and understand the events of the day, the news you see on TV, the things you hear on the radio. That grid is called your worldview. You filter everything you hear through it. You reject some things out of hand. You accept some things out of hand. You file some things away for later. Whether it's good, bad, right, wrong, or indifferent, you run everything through that grid. And God's law, as it is given in Scripture, is designed to smash your grid. It is designed to retrain your brain, to get you to think things differently because without a foundation in scripture, your grid is going to be more influenced by the world than it is by God and his word. This is why we worry about renewing our minds. This is why we worry about guarding our hearts and checking our motivations. If we are not doing those things, we will slide slowly but consistently back into worldliness. So understanding and applying these things helps you understand and apply where your grid has gone right or wrong, and then it is incumbent upon you, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to fix it and work these things out with fear and trembling. So with that said, the goal hopefully again, and I will remind you of this numerous times, don't ever fall into the trap of trying to take these things one-to-one straight across. And hopefully we have not done that in the last few weeks, and hopefully we will not do that in the coming weeks. But rather, let's understand the principle of what's going on, and then let's apply that to where we are. So as we saw this with slavery, we went through the biblical commands concerning slavery. How many of you own slaves? Trick question, right? Just make <laughs> Your wife doesn't count, and you can only say that because she's not sitting next to you right this second. <laughs> you are the slave. <laughs> I would buy that one, so there you go. Yet those commands concerning slavery teach us about how God relates to people, how people are supposed to relate to one another, how redemption, mercy, and grace are to work in this world. So we can take something that does not apply directly into our world and understand the principle for it moving forward. We're going to do that today with some of these relationships, including marriage and some of the other little things that go. So let's read Exodus 22, 16 through 31. If a man seduces a virgin, a virgin who is not engaged and lies with her, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the dowry for virgins. You shall not, you shall not allow a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. He who sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be utterly destroyed." 
You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, and if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry. And my anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets. For that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And it shall come about when he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am gracious. You shall not curse God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay the offering from the harvest or in your vintage. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be holy men to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh torn to pieces in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs." That's happy and uplifting, right? I'll take the Bible verses they don't read on Caleb for a thousand, Alex. You can tell we're skipping the positive and encouraging stuff. We're going right to the meat of it all. So let's go right back to the beginning and just make sense of this as we go. If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and lies with her, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife. If you remember, this goes back to what we learned when we went through slavery. How do I put this delicately again? Trying to, we have a few children in here, so I got to be somewhat polite, right? If you expect from her the duties of a wife, she should be given the protections, honor, and respect due to a wife. Agreed? This makes sense, right? You don't get to treat her like that unless you're going to actually, well, treat her like that. (laughs) And there are standards here. This goes back, you have to protect her, you have to safeguard her. uh, Moses will summarize this, Deuteronomy 22. If a man finds a girl who is a virgin who is not engaged and seizes her and lies with her and they are discovered, the man who lay with her shall give to the girl's father 50 shekels of silver. That's the going rate, apparently. And she shall become his wife because he has violated her. This is the important part. He cannot divorce her all his days. That's actually more of a protection than the Mosaic law gives to other relationships. Why? Because you don't get to start off on this foot and then be like, well, you know, I'd like to go down a different road. No. You forfeited that opportunity when you went down this road. Now, just to prove to you that actual restorative law, and remember, the thing that differentiates the principles of biblical law from the principles of our modern law is the nature of their outcome. And what I mean by that is, as we've looked at with property rights, with people's rights, we'll see here with economics in a minute, Um, God's law by nature is restorative. It is grace-filled. The idea is that if I steal from you, I do what? I pay it back. And I pay it back with a penalty to teach me what? Don't do that. You have violated the, the, uh, the sanctity of your brother's home. You have taken his things. You have dishonored the gifts that God has given. You have crossed way too many lines. You need to be made aware of this. Our law doesn't understand the concept of restoration. Therefore, we want what? We want punishment. Failing to understand that there is a punishment for sin that is in eternity, or it is a punishment that has been borne by Christ. We forsake the eternal, therefore we only demand justice in the temporal, in the physical, in the here and now. So this is, this is carried over even in marriage relationships. If you stopped reading here, you would go, well, that's probably not a good way to deal with this. But always remember in God's law, women, this is good news for you. You are more than just a piece of meat. Verse 17. Verse 17. 
If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the dowry for virgins. In other words, can you go roving around the countryside and go, oh, she's cute, I'll go make sure she's my wife. No, because the father can go, you're a scumbag. The answer to that question is no. no. (laughs) Not just no, hand over the money and get out. And you're a scumbag, scumbag. exactly. Why? Why? This is one of the things that gets lost because, okay, let's, let's come around the podium. Let's, I'm off the notes, so guard your brains. The accusation that gets made so often against modern Christianity is that we are a patriarchal religion, we mistreat women, we are backwards in society as opposed to our modern, enlightened, progressive world that somehow has managed to convince a group of women that being mostly naked and dancing in weird manners is empowering. I've yet to figure that one out. Don't try to explain it to me. My brain does not wish to hurt the rest of the day, so not going to go there. Hold on. Biblical principles and biblical understanding has been throughout human history the only worldview that has actually leveled the playing field for women and children, the weakest of society. And yes, I know I just blasphemed according to 2021, but on the whole, who has been in charge of human society? Men. Why? (laughs) Oh, that got you the look from family. There you go. No, because as the lesson my father tried to teach me in in all the wrong ways, throughout most of human history, might makes right. And let's be honest, the reason why men have been in charge for as long as we have is because we're what? We're bigger and stronger. On the whole, we're bigger and stronger. And most people with a pagan worldview, if I'm stronger than you, I do what? Whatever I want. Unless you're stronger than me to stop me, we're just not having this conversation. We're just going to move on. I win, you lose. Exactly. Now, it is biblical Christianity that comes in and says, no, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. You actually treat people like, wait for it, human beings made in the image of God. Whether they are old, whether they are young, whether they are smart, or whether they are, well, I wasn't going to say that. I was going to say incapable. How about that? I was trying to come up with a polite word. Um, because I'm not, t- I'm not just talking about people that are not intelligent. I'm talking about people that are, uh, un- well, not even edu- uneducated. You know the word I'm looking for, and I'm trying. When did, when did English become so complicated? I'm telling you, I'm going to hurt myself. I'm going to pull a brain here trying to not be offensive to somebody. I don't even know who I'm trying to not offend. This is how ridiculous this has gotten. But there are people who are not capable, who do not have the faculties. We care for them. We look out for them. In most of human history, you sent them away because I don't want to deal with you and I don't want to take care of you. Christianity says, no, you protect those people. Why? They're an image bearer. Women and children are protected in Christianity. Why? Because they're image bearers, gifts of God, and you are responsible to God for how you live and what you do. Great historical example of this is um, British missionaries going into India. Until the uh, the 19th century, they still practiced widow immolation. Which means, when husband, when you died, your wife was basically useless to society. So we built the funeral pyre, we put your body on it, we sent you out into the river, and we lit it on fire. That's how we did your funeral. Well, your wife's useless, so what are we doing with her? We put her on the raft with you and send her out. That's not the most pleasant of things. It was Christian missionaries that come in and went, you did what? 
You do what? No, no, time out, cheese. No, that's not how this is going to go on for any longer. It was Christian missionaries that stopped this practice in some of the most religious areas. Why? Genesis 1. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Men, women, children, rich, poor, white, black, I mean, smart, not smart, whatever it may be, are made in the image of God. Because God is the one from whom all of these things have, fall, have, uh, have flowed. This protection is given because she is not just something to be married. She's someone's daughter. She is someone's sister. She is someone's granddaughter, their niece. She will be someone's mother, someone's aunt. She is to be honored and cherished as an image bearer of God, and therefore she is to be protected. So if you get somebody who seduces a virgin who is not engaged and lies with her, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife. Unless the father goes, you know, there's multiple reasons why you seduce somebody. You might have done it just because you thought she was just the thing and you could not live without her, in which case, you know what? Don't live without her. Protect her, honor her, be her husband, and do all of those things. It could be because, here, we'll break out the really old words from English. could just be you're a cad. Apparently, I'm from the 1930s now. Don't ask me why that's the word that just popped into my head. My wife is laughing at me. could just be because you're that guy, and you know what? No, you, you move along, and we will deal with this, whatever may come. If you'd like, you can actually get biblical examples of this. You can get a bad example from the Old Testament and a good example from the New Testament. Bad example, Genesis 34. Who knows the broken story of Genesis 34? Okay, good. You're probably better off. <laughs> Go read Genesis 34. It will do you good. It is the, uh, the rape of Dinah, sister of the uh, sons of Jacob, so daughter of Israel. She is raped, and Shechem, who has committed the rape, is just so in love with her that he wants her to be the wife, and their brothers are like, this is a terrible idea. And so they make a deal. So I'll tell you what, you can marry her if you and all the men of your village are circumcised. Circumcision is rough on an adult male. It's painful. It is debilitating. You're talking about laying around doing a whole lot of nothing for days. The brothers then waited for the third day after the, all the men agreed to this and then went through and slaughtered them with the sword because you don't get to do that to our daughter, or to our sister. Jacob was mad with who? The men of the village for raping his daughter? He was mad at his sons for taking vengeance. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed, I and my household. And his sons answered, should he treat our sister like a harlot? <laughs> I have some sympathy for the boys. I don't like what they did, but I have some sympathy for the boys because they're keeping in line with what God will later codify in law. No, that's your sister. And no, he shouldn't treat her like that. He should not treat her like that. He should respect her and honor her and care for her. Men, this is encoded in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Always remember, there are no greater thans and no less thans in God's kingdom. There are people equal in worth and dignity before the throne. The distinctions that are created in society do not come from God. They come from us. 
which means they come from our brokenness. They come from our sin. And the cure is understanding that, no, we are image bearers. This is what, I talk about this all the time when I talk about getting rid of anger problems and getting rid of hatred for the world and making sure we can actually have a heart for the world and a proclamation for their lostness. That starts with recognizing that they are a sinner who has been made in the image of God and is walking the wrong way. They have gone astray. They don't know any better, but I do. They don't need my anger and my condemnation. They need my mercy and my grace and the proclamation of God's mercy and grace in Christ and the restoration that he promises. Understanding who we are helps us understand who they are. And when we understand who we are, then we can interact with each other rightly based upon what God has done and what he has called us to. Let's continue. Verse 18. You shall not allow a sorceress to live. That escalated quickly, didn't it? (laughs) Why? Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the command. It's one of the commandments. How is a sorceress impugning on having another god? How is that being in the way? Let me ask you this. What makes a plumber a plumber? High bills. High bills. (laughs) The ability to charge me $35 an hour for something I probably could have done myself. (laughs) Let's just put it this way. Let's just say I go to law school. I actually survive it. I pass the bar exam. I'm a licensed lawyer. And then I go to work at McDonald's. Am I a lawyer? Well, I mean, I could probably tell people I am, but am I really a lawyer? No, I'm a, I'm, I'm a person who works at McDonald's. I have the training of a lawyer, but I'm not actually a lawyer. What would make me a lawyer? Practice. Doing lawyer things, you know, drawing up contracts, being whatever in legal thing. I mean, I can proclaim that, you know, I'm really good at teaching people things. And I sit and play board games. Am I a teacher? No, because I'm not teaching anyone. In order to be a teacher, I have to actually teach things. That's how this works. That's why when teachers tell you when, when you're looking for a job, you'll tell you, I'm an unemployed whatever, or I'm, I'm a hopeful whatever. All right? Isaiah 46. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. When you picked up the phone in 1997 and you called, Miss Cleo, I'll you 9.95 a minute to tell you all about your future. Why'd you make the phone call? You guys don't remember the Miss Cleo commercials? Oh, come on. Those things were hysterical. A little Jamaican woman with the, with the little crystal ball sitting on her desk and she had the Aunt Jemima thing on her head. And she, th- th- that was the voice. She said, you call Miss Cleo and we'll tell you the lucky lot of numbers and all about it. You, no one remembers this? Oh my goodness, I'm in a time warp. Matt, please tell me you remember this. Bang on the wall. He's got the kids in the nursery. <laughs> Somebody my age has to remember this. Cameron does. Okay, I'm not completely. Hey, yes! 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 <laughs> Why did you call that crazy woman who was ripping you off? Because in your brain, you had convinced her that she might tell you about your future. When you go get the palm red thing, the little stands they have in the side of the highway in every town. You go, Why are you doing that? Because some nitwit has convinced themselves that maybe if they look at the lines in my hands just right, they'll tell me when I'm going to die or what my children will be. In other words, I'm asking them to do whose job? 
God, I'm asking them to tell me what is to come. Who is the one who is in control of the things that are to come? I am asking that person to do God's job. They are attempting, being the sorceress, to manipulate the world, manipulate the elements, tell the future, proclaim the things that are to come. They are attempting to climb into God's throne and say, this is my job. And God says, oh, no, 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 no. You, out. That's my seat. You don't get to sit there. Hence the reason for the penalty. Israel, to be a pure and holy people. Remember, Christian, you are to be a pure and holy people. When you find sin in your life, we do what? Remember, I haven't done this in a while. We'll do it, right? We take our weapon, we find the sin in the corner, we do what? Kill it! Kill it! We don't pet it, we don't coddle it, we don't allow it to live. We kill it, execute it with extreme prejudice. We war against our sin. And after we're done killing that one, we get back on the road, we find the next one, we do what? Kill it again. This is what we do. This is how we are supposed to live. Israel is your picture of that. When Israel finds sin amongst their midst, they're supposed to do what? Kill it. Exterminate it with extreme prejudice. They're to be a holy, set-apart people, honoring God. He is God alone. Anybody tries to get in that line, and they're out. Let's continue, because just in case you didn't think it could get any worse. Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. All right, I know what you're thinking. Did, did you need to be told that one? No, and when they say lies, you know what they're saying. I'm not, gonna get, I'm, I'm not even trying to go there. Why is this in the law? Leviticus chapter 18. You shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. The land has become defiled, therefore I have brought its punishment upon it, so the land has spewed out its inhabitants. You read this and go, I did not need to be told that. The Canaanites did. The Canaanites needed to be told this. Someone had to go into the land of Canaan and say, hey guys, that's not what you do with that animal. Because they had actually engaged in that behavior. So if you ever wonder why Joshua was told to wipe out everyone, you now have a little bit of a clearer picture as to why. Now, how does this make sense in the world? Because you're probably saying... I think we have laws about this even today, and if we don't, we should. And if we do, they should be stronger. What does this actually teach you about humanity, though? When we talk about humanity being depraved, this is what we're talking about. Not in that every human being that has ever sinned has done this, but in that sinful humanity has convinced itself that this is a good idea. We will come up with all sorts of broken gut-wrenching, depraved ways to dishonor ourselves, to dishonor each other, to dishonor God, and to destroy the world around us. Ask tough questions of unbelieving friends. I'm not saying you're going to find this in their closet, but if you are not willing to have actual, honest discussions about what sin has done to people, how it has corrupted them, and how it has perverted their mind, you are not willing to actually help them do the work of killing it. We have to be willing to walk into some very, very dark places if we are willing to walk with the light that Christ has given us in this world.
And we have to realize that it is Christ who protects us, not our purity, his, not our wisdom, his, not our great ideas, his. It is his protection, his light, his righteousness. I don't have to cast judgment. I'm not saying you've got to be happy about whatever you're going to discover, but I don't have to cast the judgment. Christ has already done that, and that sin will be dealt with either in, by that person in eternity, they will bear the penalty, or Christ will have bared the penalty for them on the cross. Those are the options. I don't have to worry about the eternity because I can proclaim Christ and hope and pray that they will trust. But this should be a reminder of just how bad humanity's brain can get and what we can talk ourselves into. Be willing to have difficult conversations. Because if you've ever had any kind of a conversation with someone who is confirmed in their sin, you will get into some dark places. Um, you will see this with addictions, not just drugs, but People become addicted to relationships. People become uh, addicted to praise. And they will contort and distort all manner of things in order to justify their behavior. Ask tough questions and be prepared to help root out whatever it is you will actually find. God gives you the tools. He gives you the wisdom. Be willing to enact it. Verse 20. He who sacrifices to any God other than to the Lord alone shall be utterly destroyed. This kind of goes right back to the sorceress, doesn't it? You're trying to occupy the, pay, the space in Israel that belongs only to God, and you cannot do that. This is where Scripture is fun. We actually have two really good examples of this in the New Testament from the same book. One is a negative example, and what is a positive example? You understand the difference on those, right? So like when we talk about training children or training pets, we have negative reinforcement and positive reinforcement. So negative reinforcement for the dog is what? It's a rolled-up newspaper, and they do something you don't like, and you whop them on the nose one time. That's a negative reinforcement. A positive reinforcement for the dog is they do something you like, and you give them a treat. So you understand. So we get a negative example in Acts chapter 12. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. Herod was feeling it that day. He was looking all royal and regal and feeling all powerful, so he sits up there and starts speaking. And the people kept crying out, the voice of a god and not a man. I like how Terry's cringing on that one. Like, you don't say that to people. What could possibly go wrong with you trying to sit in the seat that God is meant to occupy? Yeah, that, that, that always goes really well, right? No, Herod uh, dies a very painful death. He gets uh, intestinal worms, if I'm not mistaken, and they, not a fun way to go. Why? Because when the crowd starts yelling out that you are God and not a human being, what they are saying is we have forgotten God. We have forsaken God. We are willing to offer ourselves and our lives to you and not to him. That would be a problem because who is the creator? God. Now, if he is the creator, then what has come from him? This is not a trick question. Don't overthink it. Everything. So as his creation, we are dependent upon him for what? Everything. So if we forsake that and say, well, I'll be dependent upon this person, or I really think that this person has given me these things, whoever this person may be, I'm trying to pick someplace where nobody's sitting. That way I'm not pointing at anybody. That's why I go this way and this way and this way. Yeah, Jonathan's not there to pick on anymore. What I'm saying is this person is now my God. I have shaken my fist at him. I have forsaken the right worship of the God who has created me, has sustained me, who has 
died for me. I have forsaken all of that and said, no, a fellow image bearer needs to occupy the place of God. It shouldn't be like that. Instead, instead of Acts 12, you want Acts 14. Paul and Barnabas come into town, start proclaiming the wisdom of God, and the people start calling, hey, look, it's Zeus, and it's his messenger. Let's offer sacrifice to them. Just imagine how that would go over, telling Paul that you would like to offer sacrifice to him. They raise their voice saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And your initial reaction was Paul's initial reaction. When they said that Paul was a god come down to earth, in the most technical theological term I can muster, his response was, no, that's not what this is supposed to be. And they rushed, Paul and Barnabas, actually hurt myself, hold on. I can't do that anymore. Paul and Barnabas rushed in to stop them from offering sacrifice. Why? Because you don't offer sacrifice to Barnabas and Paul. You offer sacrifice to God. Do what? Yeah, you're going to lose. That's, that's not how this is supposed to work. Just like you don't offer praise to me, you offer praise to God. This is why I've told you for, well, going on, I can say years now for you guys. I've been here long enough, I can say I've said this for years. If you have, it's frightening, isn't it? If you have a disagreement with me, there's a reason why we put all the Bible... I say we, again, it's just me and the other voices, but there's a reason why we put the Bible, the Bible verses that I read in the bulletin. If you have a question about them, I want you to be able to go look them up. Because if you want to disagree with me about something, I want to get to the place where you're not arguing with me, but we're arguing about what? Scripture. Let's go to Scripture. Let's see where I've interpreted something wrong or where you think there's a disagreement, and then we can do what? We can talk about scripture, and I can explain to you how you're wrong, because if you're disagreeing with me, then you're obviously... <laughs> I almost got through that with a straight face. I was this close. I was this close. But the assumption is what? You're not disagreeing with me, and you're not arguing with me. You're arguing with how I'm explaining scripture. So the problem must lie in scripture somewhere. Let's sort that out and figure it out, and if I am wrong, you know what we're going to do? We're going to get back up front and say, hey, miss this, and this is where we got something wrong. Stranger things have happened, honestly. That's there because, again, I don't want you listening and following to me. I want you following after me as I follow after Christ. That's what Paul said. Follow after me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. So in other words, where I get it right, do those things. Where I get it wrong, don't do those things. And since I am a sinful human, guess what I'm going to do at some point in a lot of ways? I'm going to get stuff wrong. So when I do, don't follow those things, but go, hey, um, you were saying the other day in the Bible that, um, ah, I know, okay, you know what I get to go do? I get to go kill that sin in my life. That's why we ground everything upon Scripture. This is what I talk about when I say that grid. Because guess who else's grid can be broken at times? Mine. I want to reorient my grid on a daily basis so that I think through these things biblically. I apply how I understand things and how I react to things in a biblical manner. You should seek to do the same. And when we don't do those things, recognize that, hey, we found the problem. Let's go attack it. So let's continue. You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Israel. Or in the land of Israel. In the land of Egypt. If it helped, if I could actually read the right words. So let's summarize this. Love your neighbor. Why? See, this, there's, there's a reason why we hearken back to this. I've told you, if you want to understand your prophets, understand Exodus. If you want to understand your letters to the New Testament, understand the work of God in redemption. The work of God in redemption is clearly seen in the Exodus from Egypt. 
You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. This is a nice way of saying, love your neighbor because God has loved you. Show grace to your neighbor because God has shown grace to you. Be merciful because God has been merciful for you. This is what John's talking about. We love because we have been shown love. The command flows out of a knowledge of who God is. This is why, please hear this, this is why it is never the beating that it is. This is why my prayer this morning, as I was reading that section of Psalm 119, read Psalm 119 intentionally. It's it's expounding and praising the law of God. This is part of the law of God. Does this make any sense to you if you are looking at the world through pagan eyes? No, and it can't. The answer is not a better law. The answer is not a better explanation of the law. The answer is not a better understanding for the pagan of the law. The answer is to get rid of the pagan heart and mind, to take out the heart of stone and to replace it with a heart of flesh. You can only even do the stuff that we're talking about because the Holy Spirit has indwelt you. You have turned from your sins and trusted in the forgiveness and work of Christ. Therefore, you are empowered and renewed to walk differently. Then we can say, all right, now the law becomes a corrective. Now you can see how to apply what God has told you in the world. The pagan doesn't get this. They don't. This is a bludgeon to them. This is the hammer. So for us, we take these commands and we use it to kill our sin. For the pagan, we take these commands and we use it to whack them, believe it or not, because it does what? It reveals the problem. It softens the ground for the work of the Holy Spirit and the gospel. The law condemns those who are apart from Christ because it has to, because they're apart from Christ. And apart from Christ, we are all guilty. The law makes you realize that I have sin, and that sin is against the holy God. Therefore, I have a debt to him. Now what? (laughs) What do I give? What do I pay? How do I clear my obligation to God? And the answer is I don't, but Christ does. That's why Romans 2 tells you it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. It's in the recognition that your sin debt is unconquerable by you that you realize, but God has made a way. You see his mercy, you see his grace, and you see his love. This is why, again, how we live and how we testify matters. This is why I don't proclaim all the time that God loves you. Because if you have the Holy Spirit, you know what you already know? You already know that. I don't need to tell you that. If you don't have the Holy Spirit and I'm constantly telling you how much God loves you, what am I doing? I'm securing you in your sin and your iniquity. Understand who you're talking to and be ready to have honest conversations. They're not comfortable. They're not fun. I had lunch with a friend of mine the other day who was talking about a, a woman who has abandoned marriage and abandoned her marriage in, her, in his congregation. He's trying to set up a time to go talk to her. And he's like, I am not looking forward to this conversation at all. And he shouldn't be, because what's he going to have to go do? Explain what the problem is and why this is not how we're supposed to live and encourage her to turn back and follow Christ again. And he's not looking forward to this, but he's going to do it because it's a hard conversation that needs to be had. Christian, in your life, there are people that you know of. There are people that do not have Christ. They do not have that light. They do not have that wisdom. You are the one that God has sent to have those hard conversations. I'm not saying you got to look forward to it. And I'm not saying you have to ruin every family reunion either. Okay? I'm not saying you be like, all right, Christmas is coming. Who do we get? All right, you got that side of the table. I got this side of the table. Let's go. No. But people that you love, people that you have relationship with, 
you know what the issues are, you know what the problems are, you can have those conversations, you can do the work in that ground. Be willing, be open, be loving, but remember, you were a stranger. You were enslaved and have been set free. We do it not from a place of condemnation, but from a place of love and mercy and grace. We are beggars who have found bread and just trying to share. That changes how we look in the world. It changes how we look to the world and how we look at the people of the world because we see with different eyes. So let's continue. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. Why not? Because you see the world through God's eyes. James summarizes this. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. In other words, don't live like they do. Don't mistreat women and children, but do what? Honor, support, and care for them. This goes back to the very beginning. Because they are made in the image of God, we do not use our riches or our power or our authority to lord over them, but we do what? We use those things to serve them, to strengthen them, to uplift them. We help in time of need. This is why go back in history. Have fun in human history and find me a hospital and university before the last 200 years that's not Christian in origin. I dare you. (laughs) You'll be looking for a while. You know who built modern hospitals predominantly? Christians. Why? Because we saw a need and we saw people dying and sick and we said, what? We can do something about that. Guess who built universities and schools? Christians. Because we saw people and said, you know what? We can do better than this. We can give you the tools and help you succeed in this world and we can benefit better your life. We can take the wisdom that we have been given and impart it to you. Now, where they've gone since then, we are not responsible for always. But go back and have some fun and see how many of, the, of some of the most secular universities on this planet were started out as seminaries to train pastors, to train missionaries, to, to train monks and things like that. I mean, some of the oldest and best universities on this planet were Christian because that's what Christians did. Go back in human history when the plague swept through Europe in the 14th century and everybody did what? They either died or did what else? Ran away. Villages, one person would get sick and drop dead. There was actually one version of the plague where it was 12 to 24 hours. And somebody would just get sick and they'd vomit and drop dead. And it was airborne and spreading and everybody did what? Turned into a bad Monty Python sketch. Run away! And there they all go. And while the majority of people were leaving the cities and the towns, you know who was coming in? Christians. Because we did what? We saw people in need and we met it. That's the difference. This is why Christianity matters in this world. This is why, again, how, our, how we live in our testimony matters to the world. When we drift and we go along with it, what we're saying is, no, no, it doesn't matter. We can live like that. We can live like you guys. We can take advantage of these things. And the world goes, so, so what am I signing up for again exactly? How are you different? How are you better? In that moment, we have to say, well, we're not better, but we are different. Why? we have the Holy Spirit. We've talked about this before in economics. Um, capitalistic economics comes out of Geneva, Switzerland in the, in the Protestant Reformation. It comes out of Christian principles being applied to world systems. It, it comes from Christian business people saying, I want to make more money, so I make better products because I'm doing what? Why am I making good products? To the glory of God. Now, if I make a better product than you, I should get to do what? 
and I should be able to charge more money than you do because mine's better. And if people don't see that, guess what they won't do? They won't pay that, and it won't be better, and I'll lower my prices. Now, here's the other part. As I, as that business owner, make more money because I get to charge more, what do I do for my employees? I pay them more because who's doing that great work that we now get to glorify God with and charge more money for? Now, remove the, cap, remove the Christian influence from capitalism, and what does the boss get to do? I just keep putting it in my pocket and, well, I don't want to do this work for this money. All right, fine, I'll find somebody who will. <laughs> the capitalist impulse is only tamed by the Christian heart because human nature is not good in and of itself, but human nature aided by the Holy Spirit and guided by, guided by God. Say that three times fast. Exactly. Turned my brain inside out. Is good and can do good things and can honor God. So it is the Christian business person that says, no, I want employees for years and years and years. I, 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 college, after college, way too many years in restaurants for the better part of my early adult life, I was in restaurants. And you know what the, the general rule of thumb is in restaurants? Six months. Every six months, you'll have an entirely new staff because nobody's paying more than anybody else. And everybody gets mad at this, that company. And you know what we all keep doing? We just keep trading the people. So they leave my restaurant to go to your restaurant, and six months down the road, they're going to leave your restaurant and go to that restaurant, and in like two years from now, you know what's going to happen? <laughs> they're eventually going to come all the way back around, and you would not believe how many times that actually happens after about three, four years. It's the same person just kind of has gone through everybody. Why? Because nobody's willing to invest. Nobody cares. We just want to work you as cheaply as we can, for as long as we can, for as much as we can, so we can make as much as we can. That's not a Christian business model. That's a worldly business model. Because it says what? I have money, I have a business, you don't. Therefore, I get to use you for my benefit. The Christian mindset says, no, you honor that person. They're made in the image of God. You treat them with respect. You pay them more than what the pagan down the street does. Why? Because you want them to plug in. You want to be able to build discipleship. You want to be able to instruct them, to teach them, to care for them, to honor them. It's a different mindset than the world's. And if we're not doing that, then something is not just broken out there. Something is broken in here. If you afflict him at all and he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry. My anger will be kindled and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. In other words, we, all, we do this always with a mind towards what? That there is a God in heaven who will bring about justice, who will undo the wrongs, who will bring judgment upon sin. Psalm 82. God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. That's what God will do. What are his people supposed to do in the meantime? The exact same thing. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets, for that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And it shall come about that when he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am gracious. Now, here's an economic look. Somebody borrows something from you. You know what you don't get to do? You don't get to keep it, and you don't get to make money on the deal. So if your brother comes to you and needs 10 bucks, 
You give them 10 bucks, you know what you don't get to get back? You don't get to get 12 back. That's not how this is supposed to work. You gave him 10 because he needed 10. When he pays you back, you know what he pays back? The 10 that he borrowed. Why? Leviticus 25. In case a countryman of yours becomes poor and his, and his means with regard to you falter, you are to sustain him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. Do not take usurious interest from him, but revere your God that your countrymen may live with you. You shall not give him your silver at interest, nor your food for gain. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. In other words, what's the, what's the foundation for that again? Love because you have been loved. Show mercy because you have been shown mercy. Give because you have been given. Israel is to always remember, why do I stand in this land? Why is, the, why is Israel here and not the Canaanite, the Perizzites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Amalekite? Why is Israel here and not them? Because God took you out of Egypt where you were a slave and helpless, brought you out, and he wiped out those people before you and gave you that land. How dare you act like it's yours? That's, that's what's going on here. How da- who do you think you are is what God is reminding of his people. Christian, why are you wise? Why are you healthy? Why do you have investments? Why do you have a salary? Why do you have anything? Because God has given. God has given you the wisdom, or God has given you the gumption. God has given you what you are, who you are, so that you stand where you do. For you to then proclaim to the world that I did this. Do I have to say it again? (laughs) Who do you think you are? These things connect. Just as Herod sits in his regal robes and thinks what? I'm the man. No, you're not. God is. It is not our wisdom. It is not our brilliance. It is not our hard work. It is God's mercy and grace that any good has come upon us. Because in our sin and our iniquity, what have we deserved? We have deserved judgment and we have stored up wrath for ourselves. And the fact that we have any blessing and mercy in this world is a reminder that God is good and gracious and cares for his people. That's why Leviticus 25 is so important here. Because go back earlier in that. There's a foundation. You shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim a release through all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you and each of you shall return to his own property and each of you shall return to his family. Meaning, when Joshua went in and set up the land, this, is, this, this connects, I promise. So let's, I'm going to borrow Vern, you ready? I'm picking on you now. So we went in as members of Israel, we were part of a tribe, so Vern's people got an allotment, and my people got an allotment. Doesn't matter who got more, it's irrelevant. Somewhere down the line, let's just say Vern's family mismanaged theirs a little bit, and they're in debt. I didn't, it's not you, it's not your fault. It's, it's, those, it's that loud brother of yours, okay? We'll blame, we'll blame him. <laughs> Some bad dealings. So... It's year 35 since the last jubilee, which means the next jubilee is in 15 years. So Vern said, you know what? We got to sell the land. We don't want to sell the land, but we got to sell the land. So I buy it. Believe it or not, Israel, the the people of Israel would actually incorporate the jubilee into their price. The land is worth less because I'm not buying it. I'm really doing what? I'm leasing it for 15 years because in 15 years, 
I get to buy the land from you. I get to use it. I get to make money off of it. But in 15 years, it's yours again. It goes back to your family. You get to inhabit it. And I not only have to, I not only can I manage it, but I'm, I'm supposed to take care of it. I don't get to destroy it and then give you back junk again. I'm supposed to take care of it and do well with it. It's stewardship, but it's also a reminder that why did you have that plot of land? Because God took us out of Egypt and gave it to us. Why do I have this plot of land? Because God did the same thing. Therefore, why do I take advantage of you? I honor you. I pay you a good price. I care for the land. And then when the time comes, I return it to your family because it's not mine. It's not yours. It's God's. So I manage it. I steward it well. You're not there. This is why I don't charge interest. This is why I don't take care of anything. I don't look at my brother and say, I can take advantage of the situation. Or as what's the political phrase now? Let no good crisis go to waste. <laughs> Which that's, that's a political philosophy. That, ooh, there's people dying. Quick, let's pass legislation. That's the wrong way to view things. The right way to view things is not, ooh, you're in trouble. I can take advantage. It's you're in trouble. How can I help? How can I bring aid? How can I not enrich myself, but how can I protect you and thereby enrich the kingdom? That's the mindset. Again, getting my eyes away from here and getting them to where God is seated. You shall not curse God nor curse a ruler of your people because God has instituted rule and authority. Romans 13. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. Paul goes on later to say, render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And I always like to point out that the two letters of your New Testament that tell you to honor and pray for those who are in authority are Romans, written by who? Paul, and 1 Peter, written by Peter. <laughs> I always like to point out that those are the two letters that tell you to honor, respect, and do what the government tells you, right? How did Paul and Peter die? The government, the government killed them. <laughs> Which means there came a point when the two apostles that said, honor and do what the government tells you, said what to the government? No. This is not about you do whatever they say whenever they say it. This is about you honor and serve the authority that God has placed. The minute that the authority that God has placed usurps their authority and says, we would like to tell you what you should do about God. We would like to tell you how you worship. We would like to tell you where you worship. Ooh, we would like to tell you when you worship. We would like to tell you if you worship, you say, no. You don't have that authority, Caesar. I render to honor to whom honor is due. And that honor is not due you because you don't get to sit in that chair. That's the chair that God alone may sit in. So you honor the government. You respect them until they cross the line and usurp God's authority. And then you say, you keep dishonoring God like that, something bad's going to happen to you. You shall not delay the offering from your harvest and your vintage. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. When we talk about giving the livestock to God, what are we talking about? Offering them as a sacrifice. Firstborn, you take to the altar, you give it to God. Why? Exodus 13. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both man and beast, it belongs to me. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery, for by a powerful hand the Lord brought you out from this place. This is a reminder 
that throughout the generations in Israel to be reminded every single day, new lamb pops up, why is it there? It's there because God has put you in this land and God has given you that livestock and God has blessed you and protect you and you stand because of God. First Peter 1 would like to remind you that there is nothing new under the sun. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You don't stand redeemed because you had more money. You don't stand redeemed because you paid a higher price. You stand redeemed because Christ paid the price. Therefore, be careful how you walk. Be careful how you live. Because you are not your own. You have been bought and paid for by God in Christ. And you are His. 31. This summarizes it well. You shall be holy men to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh torn to pieces in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Don't live like that. So roadkill is evil, okay? Roadkill stew is bad if you're from Arkansas. I got to pick. See, I'm learning. You pick on Arkansas here. In North Carolina, we pick on West Virginia and Kentucky. So I figured out here you pick on Missouri and Arkansas. So I'm just, I'm just falling in line. And, and you laugh, but I have, I have actually known people in eastern North Carolina who have considered the animal dead on the side of the road as a meal. And I've actually known a few old farmers that have gone out to check when that deer was hit by that truck to see whether or not. God's answer is, do what? <laughs> We're not naming names. <laughs> Why is that part of the law? Because let's be honest, when someone tells you they got this pack of meat from the side of the highway, what's your first thought? <laughs> we, we have Walmart, honest. I swear to you, there's meat in the counter. I, I, I mean it. Can you not afford it? I will buy you some if it means you're not scraping you know, stuff off the highway. Because you naturally just say, we're not supposed to live like that because we're supposed to live with honor and we're supposed to live with dignity and we're supposed to live in a way that points to the provision that God has given. Now look, if, if what you need to survive is that thing lying in the ditch, then by all means, praise God that he gave you that. But if you don't need it, there's a better way to live. And this is what Peter continues on with in 1 Peter 2. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, they're going to hate you. They're going to yell at you. They're going to curse you. They're going to call you everything you can imagine. They're going to despise you because of Christ. Don't give them ammunition. They got enough. But live in such a way as to say, I don't like you, but <laughs> we got nothing. You love your neighbor. You honor authority. You have done all of these things, and you live in this world differently than us. And that's why we don't like you, but at the same time, we have nothing to accuse you of. That's where we're supposed to stand, Christian. And the way we stand there is, again, by understanding this, putting it into our brains and saying, how do I now encounter the world? How do I treat my spouse? 
How do I treat my job? How do I treat my bank? How do I treat children? How do I treat the store? How do I treat the employees? All of these things flow out of who I am in Christ. And if I find that they are deficient, then the problem is not in them, it is in me. That's when we go to killing it again. We put that sin to death. We walk differently. We have the hard conversations, but we have them because we know there is a God in heaven who is merciful and loving. And if he can redeem us as busted and broken as we are, he can redeem them too. Let's pray.